welcome to the Data Democracy. Presented by renowned O'Reilly author Ole Olsen Banyu. Empowered by Xenia. Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi everybody, you're listening to Data Democracy, and I'm your host, Ole Olesen Benjø, Chief Evangelist in Cinea and the author of the Enterprise Data Catalog, published by O'Reilly. In this podcast, we explore what the Enterprise Data Democracy is with knowledgeable guests. Today's guest is David Scrobel. David is the CEO, Managing Director of Early Information Science and specializes in structuring and organizing data, making it findable, usable and valuable. Early Information Science builds the information architecture that powers unrivaled customer experience, smart e-commerce and accelerated business decision-making for Fortune 1000 firms in manufacturing, distribution, retail and financial services. My takeaways from my conversation with David were, first, a data leader takeaway. If you won't invest in a product manager for the search experience for data, information, and knowledge in your company, don't expect employees to be able to find anything. So you heard this first on the Data Democracy podcast, Product Manager for Search. Second, a data democracy takeaway. Humans are meant to categorize, but if a particular way of organizing data makes sense logically, without having a business need, then David can predict that data quality and data governance will suffer over time. And third, a personal takeaway. David Scrobella is a biologist by trade, and his way into data came gradually as he used his background to provide unique perspectives to data management. A reminder that we should all be open to, to people with all kinds of backgrounds, educational uh, and so forth, in data. I'm a, an example of that myself. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's hear what David has to say. Hi, David. Hi, Ola. Great to be on the uh, podcast today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining. Uh, I'm very happy to have you on. I have a lot of questions. But first of all, would you care to share with the listeners uh, what you do, uh, something about your career, uh, history, and so forth? Sure, absolutely. So uh, my name is David Scribella. I'm currently a managing director at Early Information Science. Uh, we're a consultancy that is focused on information management strategy and information architecture. And certainly talk more about what our company does. Uh, I've been working for about 25 years. You know, it's it's been a, an interesting, not straight trajectory. Uh, so there's been some turns and and pivots that I certainly couldn't have anticipated. Uh, I studied human biology uh, in in school and was planning to go into public health when I when I left university. But um, this is right around 1996. Uh, and I was very intrigued by all of the opportunities sprouting up uh, related to information technology and things that were starting to emerge with, uh, at the time, was just known as web development. Um, so started to learn and self-teach. Uh, before I knew it, I was doing network architecture design for a large hospital system in, in New York City and spent the first couple of years of my career combining network architecture, systems um, architecture and administration 
uh, and web website development and web design. Uh, it was probably the early 2000s where I turned to consulting and started working <clears throat> for a, a consultancy not too unlike the one I'm with today. So a small firm that loves to work with some of the biggest companies in the world. You know, there we were really about documents and content management at scale, meaning we were working with companies as diverse as New York Times to Pratt Whitney to Eli Lilly, um, across lots of different industries, but they all had similar problems. They were all trying to bring a lot of content that at that point was not even digitized into digital systems and then think about how they will manage it centrally and start to govern it and all the workflows that went along with that. Uh, so that was uh, several years. And then some of the consulting work started to evolve into what was very focused data management and data strategy work. Um, that turned into working uh, for clients and then taking a full-time role um, in a data management position. So back in you know the mid-2000s, there weren't too many data management or enterprise data um, management and enterprise data governance programs in place. So a lot of what we were doing was we were kind of inventing on the fly. And that was actually really exciting because we had a chance to build frameworks and, and methodologies without necessarily knowing that they would endure for decades uh, afterwards. Um, so really looking at master data management, enterprise data management was a, was a focus for several years. One of the things that came out of some of that work uh, was I would say, you know, an early version of data product management. So, you know, many people are obviously familiar with software product management, uh, but we were building data products. So things as maybe esoteric or obscure as algorithms that help to match and authenticate individuals who were coming in from different entry points and needed to be um, deduplicated in real time. Those algorithms yeah. were actually provided through, you know, a variety of, of access methods and APIs, but they needed central product management. And we, we understood very early that those needed to be treated like products. Um, and also data sets that were being sold to external uh, companies and, and outside um, organizations. You know, how do you actually describe the best way to access the data? How do you provide a playbook to use and interpret the data? When you're starting to do that, you're acting as a product manager because, you know, in effect, you're taking on the same roles of communications and training around your products. Um, I, you know, I then, you know, took a, a job doing real what I would call more familiar software product management, where I was responsible for end to end, you know, front end user experience, customer research, market research, and also the, you know, the technical aspects of, of building and delivering software products. So my focus was education uh, technology. So thinking about uh, classroom management and analytics uh, products that were focused on diagnostic and score reporting. So think about, you know, uh, students who are taking standardized tests uh, here in the U.S., what does it mean sort of at the individual level? What does it mean at the classroom level? What does it mean at kind of the grade and building level and building all those different views of the data so different you know, audiences or, or users uh, could look at those um, sets of data differently. And obviously, you know, a principal is looking at something much differently than a district administrator versus a, a classroom teacher. 
did that for several years and then took a took a break in 2016 um was doing some individual consulting and at some point between 2016 and 17 uh joined forces with early information science and Seth Early our CEO is somebody I had met um a few years prior at a conference and he was really you know talking about knowledge management in ways that I thought were were interesting and fascinating and I had recently built my first knowledge management program um again kind of learning as I went but you know some of his ideas and his uh his presentation materials were really inspiring so the uh the company uh early information science is you know focused on a lot of aspects of information you know strategy and architecture as i mentioned we do a lot of data modeling we do a lot of you know design of taxonomies and ontologies and you know thing we focus on is really you know understanding business and user problems and then designing to those problems or those uh, objectives and and priorities um, what I love about the company I'm at now, it actually combines elements of we have these conceptual pillars, we call them solution pillars, which are essentially practices, um, ways in which we organize and deliver our work. One is focused on products, information management. One is focused on customer data management and experience. One is focused on knowledge management and another on content management. And, you know, those are all areas that tap into my own background and experience, having worked in large CMS programs and, you know, content web migration projects over the years, knowledge management, uh, and of course, data management as well. So we're kind of bringing together many different uh, facets or, or sub areas of, you know, the broader class of information management here at EIS. And it's a, it's a great place to be. Well, it definitely sounds very, very interesting. And, um, like what is so impressive about that approach that or the, the simply the career that you've had is that I sense a lot of different uh, domains, a lot of different industries and uh, sectors, right? Um, and just like myself, uh, you have been exposed to the fact that you should you should apply certain disciplines, you should learn something about managing data, information, and and knowledge. In a lot of different contexts, and 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 that is also definitely what I see uh, both as as your uh, as, as your profile, uh, your company profile, and uh, and what you have just uh, explained uh, very briefly, but also very very succinctly. So I would want to know a ton of questions actually, <laughs> but you have these these wonderful uh, ways of uh, explaining or pointing towards like the main. Uh, elements that that we do, uh, which is uh, which is uh, data information and knowledge management. So, so basically, like, can you can you share something about what is your approach to organizing data, like at a high level? What what is uh, how do you how do you go about that? Um, so it starts it starts with understanding and getting the people that we're organizing for to understand this very simple premise of organizing principles. And, you know, I'm, I'm still not surprised sometimes when I go into a, a first conversation and use that term and it sounds 
a little foreign to the person I'm, I'm speaking with. And then we, we start to go into basic examples or metaphors of how every individual, uh, you know, humans are meant to categorize. They are, they are inclined to, to think about how they are categorizing or grouping things together. And then the next question becomes, well, what's sort of driving that, right? Um, when you're interacting with organized information, do you actually realize that in a moment or can you sort of, can you step back and understand what's being done for you, right? A restaurant menu is a very familiar paradigm to everybody, I hope, um, <laughs> because everybody should dine out once in a while. It's a very important experience. So yeah. the menu is, you know, it's a, it's a basic classification or organization system. Some restaurants, of course, don't get it right uh, or would probably organize in ways that are not exactly aligned with the way that the, the, the customer might want, but it's a familiar way to start the conversation. So we talk about organizing principles, and then we start to think about what are the basic um, principles that you need to start the process of organizing information. When we deal with our clients around product information, uh, it's a fairly straightforward process. We start with this idea that there's a natural or logical way to classify old products by what they are, right? It's sort of the, it's the classic uh, biological taxonomy applied to physical or maybe virtual information or software products. But you have to start to think about what are, what are the ways that you talk about them that are very much uh, describing what they are and how can you start to define shared characteristics and attributes? And that helps to start really, you know, the process of designing a hierarchy or a taxonomy at scale, because you're talking about things that are similar, right? Those are your sort of broad concepts. And then you start to think about differentiating factors. That's really where in a lot of our clients, the value resides, uh, you know, categories that have very specific attributes or properties uh, are generally ones that don't get enough attention or don't have enough maintenance and management focus when we talk to product managers or line of business owners, they say that's where their pain points are. So we really get them to start talking about what are the important attributes that you want to ensure are part of this category and can be managed over time and how will you use it? Because everybody's got a million ideas. And then I, I believe it's a fun exercise. Some, some might challenge it. If you can't justify right, the, the reasons for a set of attributes and schemas to exist, other than it might be a good idea in a moment in a workshop, um, that is probably an, an indicator that the data quality and the governance over time will suffer uh, because you ha do have oh. to understand, is there marketing value? Is there supply chain value? Is there, you know, you start to map it to individual parts of a, a value chain in a company. And that's where I think the proof point is because then you understand these attributes do have very clear departmental uh, or, or value to a team or a function, or maybe there's horizontal value because they're important across um, every part of the value chain. But that's that's a really important process as we talk about not only organizing, but you know how, how to prioritize because you know organi organizing can be a very vast and, and daunting process. Let me try to get this right. I think this was really... I've never heard this before. Like so, so what you're saying is that outside of a knowledge organizing exercise or data organization exercise, 
if something makes sense logically, but only in the context where you're discussing it as an intellectual idea, you can predict that data quality will suffer over time? That is that is correct. And uh, I think it's more it's less about a hard prediction and more about a genuine uh, moment of challenging the the idea. Mm. And I think the best ideas come out the other side of a, you know, a, a conversation where if, if challenged, you can assert or justify some reason for that idea to persist and live on and get investment. Because all of the work that we do is you know, we understand that, you know, there is a cost, there's a labor cost, there could be a systems uh, cost. And, you know, we, I, I'm sure you're very familiar and, and, and right about this idea of data debt. Um, data debt only happens when good ideas never get executed on. And sometimes the execution is very much a result of, well, it was a good idea in the moment, but, you know, looking back, I don't necessarily know that this has long-term value. Mm, I really like that. I really like that. I mean, that's the other side of the coin, right? How do you, so, so you organize data, of, of course, but as you mentioned, uh, mentioned uh, you, you also have, made, have to make uh, data findable, usable, and valuable. At the other end of that, uh, or at, at, on the other side of that coin is, is, is the searching part, right? When you have organized your data, you need to be able to search for it in an effective way. So how is this connected with organizing data, the searchability? The organizing data and then thinking about the overall effort to manage that data um, certainly at scale, is connected with findability. Uh, because again, I think what what we like to do, and I think what is very important to think about, when you're starting to build a search strategy or a navigation strategy, um, you really want to think about the mental model of the people that are looking for that information. And I can talk about a, um, a high-resolution uh, video recording system that's installed in, you know, maybe a government building or a municipal office. Uh, you know, sort of a, an abstract example from many of our real clients. Some of the, the technical products we work with can um, ostensibly ha- carry 300 to 400 attributes, Um and I think that's important for yeah. a product lifecycle management system that really needs to think about and understand the, you know, the interrelationships of how products work in certain environments and testing and R&D. But when we think about moving that through uh, a data supply chain and into a PIM or an MDM system, do all of those attributes need to be um, moved across that that chain and do they have to be governed with the same level of uh, rigor and attention? And a lot of times the answer is no, because I, I think what we, we say is if we don't understand a purpose for those uh, and if there's, there's no real uh, use case for you've got customers that will search for some of those attributes that are very much about, you know, how, how a system is intended to be used in a very, um, confined environment with environmental or, uh, you know, operating specifications around humidity and temperature, et cetera, 
then it's probably not a good use of you know how to include attributes um, or information into that search experience. We, we generally like to look at search and say, how are they searching today? And we also then flip it around and say, if they had this information available, which is not available today, would this actually be useful in the future? So it's kind of building a, a proof of concept for things that are not available, exposing them to um, you know, real life users and seeing if they are in fact going to be effective ways to build search indexes and weightings uh, for what gets returned in results. Yeah, I really like this is this is so important for me also. It's it's something that I I have spent a great deal of on my career just simply working with these problems, right? And 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 also it's part of the like the the DNA, I, I dare say, of of this podcast, right? The data democracy. There would be a, a very instinctive um, drive in wanting to democratize data to make every single small piece of data or a document, information, knowledge, whatever, make it as searchable and as accessible as possibly can. That would be the like the initial thought. But you're saying something a little different here, right? Am I getting that right? I believe there's legitimate value to pre-coordination and curation of, and really only through understanding of, of people that are using and looking at data. So it's for, for me and, and for our firm, it's a combination of the qualitative and quantitative. What do people say they want to do? And if you can observe them and, and watch their behavior, what are they doing? And then if you just look sort of at a raw log of you know behavioral analytics and, and what's going on are they matching that or is that wildly different uh, but those you know those those inputs help to inform how you can pre-coordinate and curate your search and, and your retrieval experience because it i don't think it is generally going to be effective if you just let algorithms by themselves um, figure out what to present back because oh, you no. have that context and you have that knowledge, so why not apply it? Yeah, of course, of course. I I, I totally agree in this, right? I think, uh, but it's such a delicate, like it's such a delicate uh, discussion. It, it can go wrong in so many ways. Uh, I bet you have seen uh, some of that. I, I guess it's... Yes, it is. And, you know, that's why constant and continuous improvements... Uh, and and looking at and testing uh, and getting feedback on what is happening right in in your retrieval and search experiences the critical I talked about you know my own experience as a product manager earlier when we go into clients um, and they don't have named uh, owners for taxonomy and information architecture or search. We start to talk about what that will look like long term. We, we say, if you can't hire somebody in, we will help and you better train somebody to really act as a product manager for that search experience. Because you, you do wow. need a focused person who is accountable for the actual, you know, it could be precision and recall and, and doing constant testing and reporting out on what that looks like. Or it could just be a simple, um, get feedback, make sure that you're working with the right development team, uh, whether those are internal or outsourced, 
to incorporate and implement changes. I work with people that are actually using that search tool. Yeah, yeah, that is <clears throat> that is very important, and I I I do like that approach a lot. Right, uh, I think it also taps into the problem that I've been thinking a lot about this lately. That there's this paradox between IT getting democratized as a as a service. Uh, uh, you can buy pretty much every kind of uh, IT-powered capability as a service now, right? Um, as a cloud offering. And that makes you, that puts you as a, someone in line of business, uh, that puts you in the position of being an IT uh, <laughs> person. Uh, so everyone in a, in a company is today doing IT. And we call that, or some call that, uh, that, that IT is becoming democratized, but I see this huge like clash between democratizing IT and democratizing data. Because the more IT is becoming democratized, and I am not uh, like I'm not this uh, I'm not this angry architect that wants to limit the democratization of IT. But there is this paradox, right? That the more we democratize IT, the less I, uh, data is becoming democratized, right? Because we are creating more and more and more silos. I guess yes. I, 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 I bet you have met this in a lot of companies. How do you challenge that? Uh, how do you approach that problem? That's, that's a great question. We have, um, we have a lot of clients who in the past decade uh, have spawned, invested, and grown marketing technology organizations that in sit inside of marketing and have very little interaction with an also large IT organization. And what happens is you, you give the marketing technology organization a lot of discretion to buy or build um, different applications, manage data in in pretty separate and isolated ways. And you start to see, you know, points of friction or points where what the marketing team is doing can't easily be integrated into the quote unquote IT owned enterprise architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're basically reaping what they sowed. And, you know, we come together and we, in, a, in some cases, we are actually trying to facilitate or force conversations um, when we are told genuinely that there's a, an interest in bridging those silos and gaps and bringing some of the, the information flows back together. So we do see it. How do we solve for it? You know, I think it's trying to build common visions uh, around data access and understanding some of the, the pitfalls of, you know, continuous siloed development. And, you know, I, I, I'm making a point of marketing technology and shadow IT inside of marketing, if that's, you know, if that's the term that's still used. It feels a little outdated to me, but, you know, there are quasi and, and, and very uh, technically oriented people in different parts of any organization now. It could be your, mm. your marketing team. It could be um, supply chain, uh, you know, financial planning and analysis. I love uh, and will always have conversations with financial planners, you know, people that are responsible at large retailers to figure out 
how much do we need to replenish? You know, we, we obviously want to keep inventory at exactly the right level, you know, over time. That's, you know, that's data science in action. And they, they develop very advanced, I would say, um, SQL skills and, you know, data analytics skills. And at that point, you know, they, they need to be somewhat autonomous. They don't necessarily and can't be uh, too dependent on specific IT processes where IT is holding the data and only through a series of tickets can they get access to that data because they need to be looking at and analyzing and making lots of decisions or guesses in close to real time. So, you know, we always have those conversations and we talk about sort of shared uh, shared use cases and shared objectives. That generally gets us to places where we we can help to make recommendations on solutions that do integrate at the right points. I don't necessarily know that a shared enterprise data architecture at a company as large as Honeywell or 3M um, is always the objective. But I think we need to find those specific silos and say, this is causing or this is having real impact on a specific part of the business. And we'll help to tell that story through data, you know, and and through some kind of uh, set of narratives and hopefully get to a place where they're sharing. I love it. It's uh, I love it. It's always a a pleasure to 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 hear a pragmatic answer to a difficult question uh, <laughs> and but this and this is it right like if you can address the data silos and their consequences then you have your use case you can definitely persuade the business leaders that have had enough coffee that morning that this is a real problem right so uh, so i i really like that answer um yeah, we're actually approaching the end of the conversation here, but I, I would like to know uh, your thoughts. I mean, you're not the first biologist. I think there is a thing with biologists. You have, you've been trained uh, to <laughs> to figure out, okay, where does this species belong in 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 a classification tree of species, right? So, so I've I have known and worked with super skilled biologists. Uh, uh, in the past, um, so it's funny to hear that uh, approach. Given the fact that you have worked in in your entire career about uh, with 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 how to organize uh, data, uh, knowledge, information, and how to make it searchable again in this in this very very techy uh, reality that 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 you have uh, pushed yourself into, how do you think how do you think generative AI Will will affect this. I I have my own views on this, but I would be curious to know your view on it. At this moment in time, and I'm I'm now speaking about you know a, a time horizon of the next few years. I think this is a great time to be in the field of information science and information architecture. I think our work becomes more important, not less. Yeah. And I say that because what we know about targeted and focused solutions that require some level of generative AI uh, capabilities and large language models or transformer architectures, they only work on vast amounts of content uh, at very large scale. And we know all of the problems that can arise around lack of predictability and hallucinations. And if we start to bring that into the context of an individual company, 
especially companies in certain sectors like healthcare and financial services uh, and pharmaceutical life sciences. The, the results or conditions that you see with, uh, with generative AI today in a broader sense are not acceptable when you look at a specific domain and proprietary information inside a highly regulated industry. So that means that their knowledge, their, their domain of information, and certainly the information and data that is proprietary to an individual organization needs to be well architected, needs to be understood, whether that's through you know sound metadata modeling and tagging, uh, or a series of ontologies that help to kind of bring together the right relationships. There's a level of design and curation that needs to get applied before a big bank or a big pharmaceutical starts to do generative AI at scale, because the risk is too high for them to get it wrong. You know, we 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 are really very focused right now on the idea of retrieval augmented generation, right? Where Getting the right answer is not necessarily just typing uh, a query in and expecting everything to come back perfectly. But in some cases, the creative license that you are granting a large language model is okay. But in other cases, you want to have something between your query and the uh, and the resulting answer to help guide and make sure that you are directing to the right answer and the right knowledge that's already, you know, that's already somewhat managed or understood inside of your organization. And that's where we think having retrieval augmented generation and having this idea that if you've got the right answer, why would you want the generative AI to produce anything else? That's important. So, you know, building use cases, helping our clients to understand the context and almost elevating the importance of IA and metadata that's what we're focused on. And I think that's going to be the focus for the next couple of years. So longer term, will there be AI generative or any other sort that can build um, contextual hierarchies that are very tuned to an individual company better than uh, you know, a set of taxonomists? Maybe, but we're not there for the next several years. No, I agree in that, and I I really think that you will have a lot uh, to do in your company the next the many next years. I mean, I don't know to what extent this was a widespread uh, belief, but there definitely was this idea floating around when ChatGPT three was released that okay, there will be in some 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 sort of automated organization of data by artificial intelligence, and then as this. Uh, as thoughts and experience matured, we could see more and more that once again, this was a fancy feature that would provide a, provide a lot of capabilities on top of your uh, data uh, architecture, uh, but, but definitely not uh, in the bottom where everything has need, needs to be uh, sorted out by, uh, by human thought or ported, of course, by a lot of technology, but there is a very, very important human activity uh, that needs to be uh, done uh, take place prior to, to these technologies uh, providing uh, extra capabilities for companies, right? So, so I, I completely agree in this. David, time is up, but it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, I will be discussing more with you uh, after uh, after this episode. But uh, thank you for uh, for joining.
Thank you, Ole. It was a pleasure.